Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. We hope that you will go to brightnews.com or acons.substack.com or anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S and follow our podcast and then you'll get updates and it'll be pushed to your device and you can follow us and never miss an episode. Now, though I'm going to give you the traditional bio for today's guest, I have to preface it with some context. I grew up in a very liberal household in California. I often joke that the only two major sins growing up were to root for the dirty Dodgers and to vote anything other than a straight Democrat ticket. But as many of you know, I became a Christian during my first year of college, and that shifted my worldview in a major way, as it should. And I, it would still be, however, about 20 years before I voted for my first Republican candidate. And then I heard about this amazing man who was going to challenge Barbara Boxer for her Senate seat. So I volunteered for this campaign and made some amazing lifelong friends. And truly, the experience changed my life. Uh, I became politically activated, and the trajectory of my life dramatically changed. Our guest today is that candidate that I volunteered for, and someone I consider a political mentor, and probably one of the greatest geopolitical minds of our time. The Honorable Chuck DeVore is the Chief National Initiatives Officer at the highly respected Texas Public Policy Foundation. His work on economics, national security, and politics appears frequently in The Federalist, where he is senior contributor. He is the author of the novel China Attacks and the nonfiction book, Prosperity in the Lone Star State and Lessons for America. He is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and served as an elected member of the California State Assembly from 2004 to 2010. His latest novel is entitled Crisis of the House Never United. He is married to one of the kindest women that I know, Diane, and they have two wonderful daughters. And adding to his bona fides, he and my husband share the same birthday right down to the same year. Welcome back to the show, Chuck. That's great. Great to be with you. I didn't know that uh, about your husband. That's uh, that's remarkable. <laughs> yeah, it was a, 62 was a good year. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Now, would you speak to the impact about African the uh, impact African Americans had on the country in the time period that you focus on in your book, as well as the issue of slavery? Yeah, so obviously it's an issue that's extremely fraught, especially uh, seen today through t- the lens of today. Uh, so when you look at the development of the North American continent, uh, and you look at, for example, uh, the Spanish model, where they go in and they basically take over an existing empire that had a highly complex system of essentially serfdom, uh, as well as subjugation of neighboring tribes. And the Spanish, of course, conquered the Aztecs and essentially assimilated their empire uh, and had uh, what was in effect uh, slavery for centuries. 
In America, of course, things started with indentured servitude, uh, where people would essentially, uh, either because they were criminals or because they couldn't afford to come here, they would essentially uh, sell uh, seven years of their life for passage to North America. Uh, and as we know, and as has been uh, significantly discussed with the uh, so-called 1619 Project in the New York Times, by the way, uh, most historians will tell you that significant portions of that are entirely fictional, uh, but eventually uh, the entered servitude was replaced with the system of bringing over people from Africa, purchasing people who were captured on the battlefield or conquered uh, in Africa, paying and bringing them over in uh, often horrific conditions uh, for uh, use uh, in agriculture and light industry in America. Uh, you also saw that in places like Santo Domingo, which is modern day Haiti, uh, where the conditions because of the nature of, of growing sugar cane in the tropics were terrible. They needed an enormous supply of new people all the time because the slaves there would die very rapidly. Uh, so in America then, uh, in the time frame of this new book of mine, uh, The Crisis of the House Never United, around 1790, uh, slave labor was primarily used to grow indigo and tobacco and rice and cotton. Uh, and the profit margin of that wasn't exceptionally high. And what happened in just a, a decade or two is you had two things happen. The cotton gin was invented. And the cotton gin allowed the, the, the growth of a kind of cotton that had a lot of seeds in it that was very uneconomical to grow because it took too much labor to remove the seeds, but the cotton gin will allow you to take the seeds out. And that kind of cotton grew in far larger areas than the previous cotton that was grown only along the riverbanks. And so in a very quick period of time, uh, the South went from growing a number of crops, uh, many of which, by the way, were not grown with the assistance of slaves, uh, to becoming a monoculture growing one particular type of cotton that made an enormous amount of money. And so uh, my novel takes place prior to that uh, happening. Uh, and if you want, we can talk a little bit about what all that money did to the attitudes of the people who, uh, who were making it. And you can expand on that if you, you'd like to. Well, I mean, one of the things, again, I think our, our uh, attitude about uh, race relations and slavery is, again, colored by Civil War history and a lot of, in my opinion, revisionist historians who wish to cast the United States uh, as having this original sin of slavery. Never mind, of course, that this was the British Empire that it started it. We weren't an independent country yet. So what had happened in the period from the invention of the cotton gin to 1860 with the advent of the Civil War is as uh, the South went from a varied um, uh, product of agriculture. And remember, this is all pre-industrialization. So agriculture is the main way of making money uh, because industry hadn't yet really even been invented. Uh, so the South went from growing these four main crops to just growing cotton. And the profit margin went up massively. And so what happened is people whom just a generation earlier thought that slavery was a sin, thought that we would get rid of it eventually, that it was just as corrosive for the master as, a, as it was for the slave because of what it, what it would do to uh, the, the master's, um, uh, you know, basically e eternal salvation and to uh, them, uh, you know, as a person, uh, that it, it corrupted them. Uh, 
Uh, and they went from from that attitude, a contrite attitude that, well, you know, we, we you know, it was bestowed upon us from the British. How do we get rid of it? It's terrible. To a hardened heart uh, where people began to rationalize it as a positive good because the profit margins went up so significantly for that very small percentage of people in the South that owned property in people. I mean, it's hard for us to understand today in modern America, although, of course, uh, there are hundreds of thousands of people living in slavery around the world today in Asia and Africa uh, and other parts of the world. Uh, but it is still hard for us to understand even having the concept of, of owning someone else. I mean, that's just insane. And um, I think one of the important things that, that I'm trying to get out in the book and that I'm hoping people take an opportunity to learn is that at the, at the beginning of the United States of America, where you have uh, Thomas Jefferson, who did own slaves, writing, uh, mostly writing the uh, Declaration of Independence. Some people think that Thomas Paine may have had a hand in helping out and others. Uh, you have that preamble of the Declaration, which Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, even cited, uh, which is that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And uh, all men means all people. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't until uh, the Dred Scott decision by Chief Justice Taney that you really had this fiction, this, this, this thing that was created whole cloth that even denied the basic humanity of the, the, of the slaves that were living amongst us at the time. And so uh, part of what I'm trying to do with my book is to present an alternative history of what happened in the United States when the Constitution wasn't ratified and when things kind of went off the rails early uh, and you have this regional conflict between North and South that is not based on differences over slavery, but rather on other differences. You wrote about the belief of some about an impending national divorce because, quote, our constitutional order appears to be breaking down, end quote. Would you expand upon these thoughts? Why is our national order crumbling? And how likely is it that it will lead to a national divorce? Yeah, that's a great question. So essentially, there's a couple of things going on. If you go back to the uh, 1870s, uh, you had uh, this flowering of uh, advanced education, essentially the creation of the PhD program. You had these political scientists and theorists coming over from Germany. Uh, you had people like uh, Hegel and, and uh, other thinkers. Uh, and the theory back then, fully embraced by uh, President Woodrow Wilson, who prior to being president, was president of Princeton and basically the first political scientist president we ever had. And by the way, an exceedingly racist man uh, who uh, was a big booster of the KKK uh, and white supremacy. In fact, prior to his becoming president, uh, there were um, uh, black and white employees would work alongside each other in federal agencies. And uh, he issued an executive order to, to segregate federal agencies, this democratic president. And so, um, Woodrow Wilson and other thinkers of their time believed that the American Constitution was obsolete, that it was built for an agrarian society, and it was written a long time ago, and that it was not up to the challenges of a modern industrialized America. Uh, and so they didn't like the idea of checks and balances. In fact, Woodrow Wilson uh, likened it to uh, an organism uh, and invoked Darwinism, saying that no organism with organs that are set off against each other can survive. Uh, this is contrary to the theory of evolution. 
and therefore he thought that government's organs should all work together. Now, now, of course, the founders, knowing what they knew about human nature and about greed and ambition, wanted to have checks and balances because they knew that unfettered power would lead to tyranny. And so at the federal level, ideally, we're supposed to have three co-equal branches, each separate, uh, each with their own powers and prerogatives that they jealously guard between the legislative branch, which is Article One, the executive branch, which is Article Two, and the judicial branch, which is Article Three. And then there's a further check and balance in our system uh, between the national government and the state governments and their powers. And I think it's very important that we understand, by the way, that states have powers. They don't have rights. Only people have rights. But governments have powers. And so the, the founders set up the system with the three branches at the national level and then the tension between the national government and the states as a way of dividing up power and preventing any one person or any one faction from becoming so strong that they might become tyrannical. Now, part of the problem is, of course, this has been breaking down and it's been replaced increasingly by something that we call the administrative state, which goes back to Woodrow Wilson, goes back to the progressives about 120 years ago and their belief that our representative form of government was inadequate to the industrial age and therefore you needed technocrats. You had to have highly skilled bureaucrats, unelected people, by the way, who would be making these very complex and important decisions for us following the general guidance given by elected officials. Of course, this is not a form of government that the founders would have recognized. And as we've seen with the reaction to COVID, uh, with some uh, other challenges, we, we see it with, for example, school districts and how they've reacted to parents wanting to have uh, more transparency and a little more say in their children's education. And it seems like every day we see a form of government that thinks that, that we, the people, uh, are just meddling in their right to conduct our affairs for us. And so that's what I'm talking about. Essentially, think of it this way. Think of it as the government's the style of government in California under Gavin Newsom or in New York being then imposed upon the whole nation through the force of the federal government and its bureaucracy. That's essentially what we're facing, where, where the distinctions between the states and how they govern themselves become erased and, and the states essentially all become like California under the auspices of a strong federal government that doesn't give us much leeway. That's absolutely right. You wrote that crisis of the house never united, quote unquote, ask the question, what would have happened if the constitution had not been ratified, end quote? What inspired you to look at that question? So back in 2004, I had the opportunity to be a Lincoln fellow with the Claremont Institute. It's about an eight day seminar where you learn about the philosophical foundations of the country. Where do the founders draw their inspiration from? People like Montesquieu, uh, some of the other great, you know, Locke, um, Machiavelli. Uh, and so they knew what they didn't want, right? They looked at the city-states of, of Greece and how they swung between a tyranny and, and kind of a populist democracy and how unstable they were. Uh, they thought that a republic was the best form of government. Uh, and the problem was, is that in the six years after we won our independence from Great Britain, we were governed under a, a form of government called the Articles of Confederation. And that was really a state-centric government. It was very difficult to raise revenue, to run the national government. 
Uh, we couldn't raise enough money to have a national army to defend ourselves against the Native American tribes who were being armed and equipped by the British, because the British, of course, were still upset that they lost, and they wanted to bottle us up. They, they wanted to prevent us from moving our boundaries to the west and to the north. Uh, and so they armed the Native American tribes in the Ohio River Valley. Uh, and um, without an army, there was nothing really you could do about it. Uh, and so uh, what I found during the Lincoln Fellowship was something I didn't, I didn't know, which was that the ratification fight for the Constitution in 1787 was very hard fought and very close. And so what you see after Shays' Rebellion in 1786, we have a bunch of angry farmers in Massachusetts who almost overthrew the government of Massachusetts. They were angry because they didn't have the hard cash, the gold and the silver, to pay for their mortgage debts or to pay their taxes. And so they tried to overthrow the government of Massachusetts and almost succeeded. And so people were pretty pretty uh, upset about that, pretty worried about that. And so uh, about 55 of the most powerful and wealthiest men in the country gathered in Philadelphia after that and put together a new uh, a compact, uh, a new constitution uh, to uh, supplant the Articles of Confederation. And it needed nine of the 12 um, uh, United States to approve it to go into effect. And the first five happened pretty quickly. And then it got to Massachusetts and there was a fight in Massachusetts. Uh, and it was complicated by the fact that you had a lot of these defeated farmers from Shays Rebellion in the western part of the state that were pretty angry and they were pretty suspicious of a strong uh, national government. Uh, and so uh, it barely passed, and it only passed in Massachusetts with the promise that there would be a, a Bill of Rights incorporated into the Constitution. Alexander Hamilton and others opposed it. Uh, George Washington opposed it. They thought that a Bill of Rights was superfluous, that it wasn't needed, that it was implied. Uh, but you never would have gotten the votes out of Massachusetts without it. A week later, there was a ratification convention held in New Hampshire in Exeter. And I'll tell you, you think politicians are uh, sneaky these days. Uh, what happened in Exeter, remember, it's the middle of winter. It's February uh, 1787. They held the nominating for the ratification convention in Exeter on the coast specifically to prevent the anti-federalist farmers from the north and the west of the state from being able to make it to Exeter because all the roads were icy and snowy. And in spite of that subterfuge, they almost lost the vote outright. They almost had uh, a rejection of the Constitution ostensibly over the issue of slavery. Uh, and I say ostensibly because it's hard to know through the lens of time whether this was used more as a rhetorical device to, to fire people up or whether it was truly sincere, but that's what was used. Uh, and they almost had a vote to outright reject the Constitution. And the Federalist side barely was able to get a vote to simply adjourn and to readjourn in June. And shockingly, even after that bad faith effort trying to prevent the farmers from making it to Exeter, uh, eventually they did, in fact, uh, ratify in June. But then right after New Hampshire came Rhode Island. And Rhode Island put the uh, Constitution out to a vote in these town hall meetings. It was like a referendum. And it was overwhelmingly, re overwhelmingly rejected, I think, by more than 10 to 1, partially because the Federalists were so afraid to go to the polls they thought they would be tarred and feathered and attacked if they went to the polls because in Rhode Island, a mob of people had taken over the legislature uh, recently. They just ejected the lawfully elected legislature and just showed up and said, we're the legislature now. What are you going to do about it? And so things were pretty crazy back then. And so 
when George Washington heard the news about about uh, New Hampshire rejecting and then uh, uh, Rhode Island rejecting, which was probably a little more uh, expected, he was devastated because they needed nine. They had five really quick, and then they lost two. So that was seven, right, with five to go, and you need two more for ratification. And so in my book, that whole process starts to break down uh, because in my alternative history, Shea's Rebellion was a little more violent than it was historically. And the reprisals under Governor Bowdoin of Massachusetts were a little more harsh than historical. Uh, and that sets in motion a chain of events that uh, that causes the ratification to go off the rails. I want to pivot a little bit. Uh, a new report from U-Haul confirms that California, our former state, uh, remains the state with the greatest loss of population in the nation, uh, and that Texas, our new state, uh, is the fastest growing state. And it's the third year in the row that this has happened. Uh, California has lost two seats uh, because of the hemorrhaging. What does that portend for Texas and the uh, political complexion, if you will? Yeah. So we've polled on this at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and other entities have as well, because people are naturally worried that these newcomers might swing uh, Texas political climate uh, to the left. So far, the evidence would seem to suggest that the new arrivals uh, to Texas are slightly to the right of native-born Texans, which I think makes a certain amount of sense when you think that it's a big commitment to move to another state, especially yeah. another state that may have a completely different culture than the one you left behind and is a long ways away from friends and relatives. And so you certainly see that with the diaspora coming out of California, uh, Maria, like you and, you and me. Uh, and so I, I think we're part of that wave of people who have moved to Texas that are slightly to the right of the native Texans. Uh, now, what's interesting, uh, I had a, a piece that just appeared today in Fox News that talked about uh, Governor Gavin Newsom making this outrageous claim during his inauguration on uh, Friday that California is, quote, the freedom state. Uh, and I write in Fox News that the, the governor of California is conflating the difference between freedom, as the, as the founders would see it, liberty to do the right thing, with libertine uh, concepts. In other words, being able to do anything you want to, regardless of the consequences. And so now here you have a state that will pay young women, uh, mm -hmm. pay their expenses to fly to the state, and potentially procure a late-term abortion. Yeah. It'll pay for, it'll help you. If you're the parent of a child and you traffic a minor child to California to be like the James Younger case, yes, become castrated or or have a, a double hysterectomy or a hysterectomy and a double mastectomy, right? Uh, that will take your doctor's license away from you if you talk uh, about COVID nineteen in a way that's not approved by the um, the authorities, uh, contrary to the tenet of the First Amendment and to the scientific method. Uh, so that's California. And Marie, California now bans official state travel to 23 states. Get yes. this. I put this in the article. Of the 10 fastest growing states in the nation, nine of the 10 are on California's ban list. The only one that isn't is Washington State, which doesn't have an income tax, but because it's on the Pacific Coast, is a little more left-wing socially, so therefore... It's not considered evil by the California authorities. So it reminds me, Maria, of a certain, a, a certain verse. And I'm going to paraphrase it here. 
where the good is evil and the evil is considered good. good. So here we have yes. California that is labeled 23 states evil. And yet, and yet, of the top 10 fastest growing states, nine of the 10 are on that list. So it doesn't seem like the rest of Americans view those, those nine, uh, including Texas and Florida, uh, as bad places to go and raise families, right? right? If they're so bad, why are people moving there? You know, what's really interesting about that too, and, and I have a hard time explaining this to people, but you know, when people think of California, they think about it as being so liberal, but you and I both know that that has a lot to do with the urban population centers like the Bay Area and like LA. But if you go out of those areas, California is pretty red. And I would think that, you know, those are a lot of the people that are moving to Texas and Florida and these other states uh, because they are seeing the policies of California just that are simply destroying. It's a political agenda right. rather than trying to uh, boost the economy of the state that's been bankrupt for over a decade uh, or really do any sort of significant policy work to improve the lives of its citizens. The schools are terrible and they've been terrible. Uh, you know, just life in California is not good for the citizens. But yeah, let's go make it an, a, an abortion sanctuary. Yeah, let's go make it a trans sanctuary. Let's spend money on that. Let's have illegal uh, immigrants uh, be able to serve on juries and get all kinds of benefits and driver's licenses and those kinds of things. Let's be woke, but let's not do anything to really effectively change lives. Right. And, and uh, Marie, even even, uh, of course, all across the country, the, the rural areas do tend to be more red. But even with these urban areas, uh, just think of it this way. Uh, look at the greater Los Angeles area, some 15, 20 million people. Even if they vote 75 to 25, uh, liberal to conservative, right? At 25% of 15 million people, you're still talking about almost 4 million people which is greater than the population of most states. And so a lot of the people leaving are those, those people from the urban yes. cores who just keep their mouths shut because they don't want any trouble at work, right? They don't want to be canceled. Uh, and, and frankly, it gets weary after a time uh, not wading into political discussions amongst your friends and colleagues at work, yeah. you know, minding your P's and Q's, biting your tongue. Uh, that's not a fun way to live. Uh, and so, uh, Many of them decide to move. There's a, a poll that's done, I think, out of UC Berkeley, uh, I think every other year, looking at political attitudes in California. And what they find is that among conservatives, the number one reason why they are thinking about moving out of California is because of political repression. They're just tired of always having to look over their shoulder and, and being quiet. Uh, of course, number two and three are the high cost of living and, and High taxes, uh, specifically high housing costs. So it's just interesting when you see that among the young people of California, it's the high housing costs. Uh, and that's of, both, of people who are both to the left and to the right uh, who are young because they realize very few of them are ever going to be able to get a start in California because government policies have made the price of housing out of reach for the average Californian. That's absolutely right. You and our good friend, Alan West, are really the only two people that I have heard 
sounding the alarm for many years now about the great geopolitical threat raised by China. Why haven't more been speaking up and what can we do to stop the land grab here in Texas by the CCP? Yeah, I mean, it's a complex issue. It's challenging because America is a continental power and we don't exactly have threatening neighbors to our north and to our south, although I certainly would argue that the criminal uh, human trafficking and drug cartels in Mexico are increasingly controlling uh, all levels of the Mexican government. Uh, So Mexico, unfortunately, will start to intrude into our national consciousness, I think, here very soon. And so generally speaking, uh, Americans have the luxury of not worrying about the rest of the world. We don't generally learn other languages. Uh, We don't generally travel abroad as much as do Europeans or Asians. And so um, we're insular. And so we don't think much about China. And to the degree that we do, it's the people within our business community who've made a lot of money by deindustrializing America, by shipping jobs overseas, largely to coal-fired China, where things can be made very cheaply uh, and then imported back into America. Ironically, if you're concerned about climate change um, and you think uh, that uh, man-caused CO2 is a problem, uh, generally, by the way, I don't, But if you were concerned about that, then you should certainly be concerned about all the industry that we've lost to China, because virtually everything there is made with coal fired power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not even uh, they don't even have scrubbers on the coal. So people end up getting uh, lung disease and problems from that. So I think there's been a lot of money made. And it's only until recently where people are finally beginning to wake up to the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has had a long term plan to become the number one nation on the planet. And they view the United States of America as their number one roadblock or adversary to achieving that. And unfortunately, I think we took a long vacation after the Cold War, uh, and we did not pay attention to proper defense priorities. Our Navy is not nearly as strong as it should be. We've allowed our nuclear forces to decay, be not modernized and strengthen. The Chinese are adding... uh, to their nuclear arsenal at a pace uh, that's quite terrifying. It's uh, mm-hmm. outstripping anything that most people uh, realize. Uh, and they are girding themselves for war. Now, insofar as Chinese property ownership here in America, uh, let me break it into two categories for you. First of all, there are a lot of everyday Chinese people, many of whom have made a lot of money as China has embraced, kind of gone from communism to fascism, where it's essentially state-directed enterprise, uh, and that's a little more efficient than communism, and so they're making a lot of money. And so a lot of Chinese have parked their earnings into American real estate. So, for example, in a recent year in California, 2% of the real estate purchases in California were from China, because that's a way for them to convert their currency into capital that the Chinese Communist Party can't very easily take, right? It's it's one thing to take away the company that you built and to confiscate all of your cash if you live in China. It's much harder to do that if you have a house in Los Angeles. So that's number one. I'm not as concerned about that because you can't take the house with you mm-hmm. uh, and the property remains in America. But then let's go to concern number two. What you're seeing increasingly are large tracts of farmland being bought by Chinese uh, interests. In most cases, Uh, This farm and ranch land, coincidentally, 
since yes. adjacent or close to yes. sensitive military installations, yes. which is quite troublesome because who knows what sort of intelligence gathering equipment or jamming or other types of equipment might have been brought into that piece of property that could allow China to gain an advantage for the first few critical days of a conflict. We have talked about that quite a bit, particularly, uh, I think it's Laughlin Air Force Base and some of the other places. That That is a very, very uh, salient point that you bring up. And especially as we've been talking about TikTok and you know some of these other uh, companies, uh, the, the surveillance is, is really a critical point. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about, um, is that yesterday started our biennial, uh, Texas legislature, uh, a legislative session. Uh, do you have any predictions for this session? Well, yeah, that's always, uh, that's always a big risk, isn't it? You make predictions and then people remind you of them later. Um, so if you look at the, uh, the governor and the lieutenant governor and the speaker of the house. Uh, if you look at the fact that we picked up one seat, I say by we, the Republicans or conservative-minded people picked up one seat in each house. Uh, I'm expecting you're going to see uh, more productivity out of this house uh, and Senate than you have in years past. Uh, you have a fairly large budget surplus. There's a lot of talk, especially by the governor, of using a substantial portion of that to buy down property taxes which, uh, as you know, in yes. Texas, we don't have this Prop 13 that Californians passed clear back in 1978. Uh, there was uh, some modest restraints put on property taxes in Texas uh, four years ago during session that we were a big part of, uh, of helping to craft and encouraging the legislature to pass. Uh, but that's a half measure. It, it's only kind of slightly restrained the growth of local property taxes. Uh, so. Uh, that's something we'd like to see. Parental empowerment, we think that there's a great chance uh, that you're going to see movement on that very key issue. Uh, we view it as essential, uh, not only to yes. improve learning in Texas, uh, but also, uh, in, a, in a way, a civil rights issue. Because if yes. you have uh, children in inner city schools where their parents or parent uh, don't have the money and ability uh, to get into a better zip code, in many cases, their children are consigned to a subpar education. And then you have the specter of multi-generational poverty. Uh, we need to break that. We can break that cycle. Uh, we need to uh, view it as a, a sacred mission to the people of the state of Texas to improve the opportunity for all Texans to have a, a top-grade education uh, for their children. Uh, and I think this is very important from the standpoint of, uh, of how we get along with each other as citizens, uh, how we see uh, people uh, accumulate wealth and be able to uh, become more full material participants in our republic. Uh, and uh, I would hope that we'd see some progress on this very vital issue. Uh, I'm confident that we will. Uh, the question is how much? Amen. You know, for a long time that I've talked about the educational freedom uh, being a civil rights issue. So I, I hope that that does happen. And the, the priorities of the Republican Party of Texas, the eight priorities, uh, you know, do center a lot on parental initiatives and so and protecting our children. So I do hope that those things happen. 
If you're just joining us, our guest this segment has been the Honorable Chuck DeVore. His new book is Crisis of the House Never United. Chuck, how can our listeners continue to follow you online and follow your work? Well, a great place, of course, is the Texas Public Policy Foundation. So that's uh, just texaspolicy.com. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, although that's <laughs> sometimes a mixed blessing, uh, at Chuck DeVore. Uh, I write quite a bit uh, for The Federalist. I'm a senior contributor there, so my pieces will appear at The Federalist. Uh, I'm a fair amount on Fox News, both uh, in written form and on the broadcast, um, so uh, there as well. Uh, and then I have a new piece, of course, today in The Daily Caller, which, um, you know, you can, only, you can only get your stuff into so many different papers, right? There's only a certain amount of days in a week and, and a certain amount of time that you can put to creative endeavor. But uh, that's mostly where you're going to find me is, is Fox News and the Federalist. And, of course, um, on TexasPublicPolicy.com, where you're not only going to see my opinion pieces, but occasionally when I write uh, a research paper, it'll be there as well. And then, uh, of course, uh, my book can be found on Amazon. Uh, I, I have a handy uh, hard hardback here. Uh, and uh, it's uh, actually... I've been very impressed by the Amazon distribution system and, and the quality of, of the material. So I've got them both in Kindle format and paperback and hardback. Uh, and um, I'm hoping to get in the studio and do an audio version as well. Don't hold me to it. How cool but, is uh, that? I'd like be? to do that as well. Because as, as you may, I mean, I like to think that I've got a great face for radio. You do. And you've got a great voice. So... Awesome. It was so great to have you as our guest today. I hope you'll come back and please do give Diane my love. Will do. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our interview with the Honorable Chuck DeVore. And you can see why I volunteered for this man's campaign. You can see why he is my political mentor. And you can see why uh, I just absolutely adore him. He is one of our greatest uh, political minds, I think, of our time and, and such an asset and such a, a treasure, a national treasure. So let's bring on in DK. DK, come on in. Hola. Hey, what did you think of that? That was a very fascinating interview. He makes a lot of great points. He wrote, does. A, he wrote a very interesting book also. You know what I found really interesting that he said that I had, and, and I don't know why I've never thought about this, but he's absolutely right. All of these athletes that have been kneeling for the Star Spangled Banner for our national anthem really should be kneeling when they play God Save the King. We were really a colony of uh, Britain at that time. So, yeah, I, I found that fascinating. Yeah, we have quite a history. I mean, um, he, he his book talks about uh, that period that I I never gave a great deal of thought to. Um, you know, I like to read American history. I read about the Revolutionary War period. I read about uh, the Civil War period. Uh, I love reading about re Reconstruction because that's when, yeah. you know, our, our people, Black people, made so many advances, um, the Civil Rights March. But I never really studied the period that Chuck DeVore wrote about in his book. And so I, I recommend I recommend that very highly. You know, you get the taste of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton and so many Native Americans and African Americans who had an influence. 
it's it's quite a read and um and it's quite a period of history to study and you know what's really interesting to me is that you know um here in texas there are a lot of uh, there is so much African-American history that that is really surprising, I think, to a lot of people. There are a lot of streets named after people that I had to look up when we were looking for our house. I saw all of these names and I was like, who is this? Who is that? There are a lot of streets named after people in Texas. There are a lot of cities named after people. There are a lot of places named after people. And so I'm also a student of history. My mom was a big history buff. My youngest is a huge history buff. Um, And so I looked all of these people up and I was surprised to find that a number of them were African-Americans who had some significant contributions to Texas. So I, I find it all really fascinating and how our country, you talk about these athletes, again, who have disparaged this country. Um, but this country has been a land of opportunity for a lot of us, as you have said. And and so I feel like we really need to, to do, we would be doing ourselves a great favor if we studied more of history. You know, speaking of historical figures, I was I was reading uh, Chuck DeVore's book, uh, Crisis of the House Never United. And I came across this name that I couldn't believe was a real person. There was a, actually, there was a famous chef, an African-American chef during that time period. And his name was Chef Cuffy Cockroach. I don't know if I would (laughs) eat anything from a chef whose name was Cuffy Cockroach. Yes, Chef Chef Cockroach. I don't think that I would eat anything (laughs) from a Chef Cockroach. I don't know about you, but I grew up in public housing. So I'm just going to say the relationship with cockroach. No, 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 no. So you're not interested in no, going to the cockroach no, cafe no, no, or, no, no, no. or having a cockroach, cockroach special for the night? Or? No, no, thank you. <laughs> oh, to this day, I have nightmares. So okay. that was a great interview. I hope that Chuck will come back and talk to us again. In the meantime... Uh, This is African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. You can find us at brightnews.com. Also, you can find us at anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S and also at acons.substack.com. Until next time, it's Marie. This is DK. Wishing you a good day. Take care.